Well, good evening, everyone. It's always a blessing to look at God's Word together. And today we'll be in the book of Acts. Please turn to Acts chapter 1. And the theme I'm bringing tonight is one that was brought to my mind by some of the studies that I've been doing. Uh, Dr. Richard Barcellus over in California has been taking the seminary students through some aspects of the book of Acts. And one of those is that the resurrection glory of Christ is definitive for the entire book. The resurrection glory of Christ. Christ as the exalted and glorified king. And that got me started looking at the book of Acts for that theme. And it's amazing. And it's glorious. So I want to talk this evening about Christianity's living Christ. Christianity's living Christ. And we'll read Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. So if you would, please stand with me out of respect for God's holy word. Let us give our hearts and minds to the word as it is our life. Acts chapter 1. The former treatise, the book of Luke, have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after that he through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion, by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which, saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost, not many days hence. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, Wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go. Into heaven. Then returned they unto Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem a Sabbath day's journey. Let's cry out to the Lord again. O Lord Jesus Christ, exalted King of this church and every church, we thank you that you've given us this word. Speak to us now, we pray, and have mercy upon us. We need it. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Brethren, the Lord Jesus Christ rose again from the dead. The third day after he died on that cross at Calvary, 
women who came to honor his body were witnesses that his tomb was empty on that first day of the week. Roman soldiers testified to the rulers of Palestine that a deployment of angels had disturbed and interrupted their watch and broken the seal on that tomb, and it was empty. It was clear Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. Peter and John viewed the empty tomb. Our resurrected Lord Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene, to two others on the road to Emmaus, and to the twelve, or eleven, as they were gathered together behind closed doors. And eventually, he showed himself even to a crowd of 500 people at once. The Lord Jesus Christ showed himself plainly and clearly to his disciples over the course of 40 days. He ate with them, talked with them, conducted Bible studies with them, encompassed all the law, the prophets, and the writings of the Old Testament. It was glorious. But let me ask you, what's the big deal about this resurrection of Jesus Christ? Does the resurrection serve just as a kind of significant wow event to prove that Jesus is who he said he was? Or is it more? Is it something so glorious that it becomes the basis for everything in Christianity? Is it everything to you? My friends, I declare to you tonight on the authority of God's word that the Lord Jesus Christ, whom we know and love, entered his glory at his resurrection. And the Christian life that we live is a participation in his glory, the glory that Jesus Christ attained by his resurrection. Or to put it another way, Christianity, our life in Christ, is the manifestation of the resurrected glory of Jesus Christ. And that's what the book of Acts tells us. The book of Acts is just the narrative of the glorious and mighty things that demonstrate that the risen Lord Jesus Christ who has been exalted and given glory from his Father after he suffered and entered into his glory, that he is now spilling that over to all those who are united to him by faith. Before we start talking about Acts, Let's go back to Luke, because as you probably know, I'm sure all of us know that Luke wrote the gospel of Luke and Acts. And at the end of his gospel, Luke tells us the central importance of Christ's resurrection glory. Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, and we'll read verses 25 through 27. This is the Lord Jesus speaking to those two on the road. To Emmaus. Then he said unto them, verse 25, Then he said unto them, O fools, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. We won't spend much time tonight on the connection of the Old Testament to what we're talking about, but that's crucial. Because over and over again, Luke in Luke and Acts says that everything the prophets said was about this glory. We'll just focus on the glory. All that the prophets have spoken, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, ought not Christ, the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one promised in the Old Testament, ought not that Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, 
our Lord Jesus expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The result of Christ's resurrection is called entering into glory. It's a change of state. He attained something that he did not have before. And just as a side note, this message is related conceptually to what Pastor Jeff has been telling us from the book of Hebrews. He has put it very simply. He's emphasized for us that Jesus Christ is God's son in two senses. He's the Trinitarian son, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he's also the incarnational son. He is the man who is God. But as a man, he lived as a man in humiliation and suffered. And then he purchased for us that glorious salvation. And the Father exalted him and gave him the name, which is above every name, the name of Lord. And in that sense, he is also Son of God, mediatorily on our behalf. He is the Son because he purchased it, even though he was Son from eternity as well. And here, the Son of God was glorious from eternity. He didn't need to get any more glory. But there was a baby that was born in Bethlehem, and he attained glory because he is the Son of God, and he attained glory for us. Mediatorial glory, glory on our behalf, glory with us, and we will have glory with him. That's all our hope. That's all our salvation. Whenever we talk about our hope, whenever we talk about Christianity, I'm using it in the the general sense, not the religious sense, but the sense of our belief in this set of doctrines, that we call the gospel and so on. Whenever we're talking about that salvation, we're talking about Christ attaining glory for us by his work. He suffered and he was raised again and entered into glory. Move just a little further in the chapter, Luke chapter 24, and here he has now, um, he, he astonished those, those two on the road to Emmaus, and they were so amazed when they realized they were with the risen Christ that they got up that very same hour, even though it was late in the day, and they made their way back to Jerusalem and told the brethren, we've seen Christ, we've seen the Lord Jesus, and then the Lord came in their midst. And here he is in their midst, and now he speaks to the whole group, verse 44, and he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then opened he their understanding. This is that Bible study going on. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures and said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behoved Christ, the Christ, the promised one of the Old Testament. Thus it behoved him to suffer, and to, remember earlier it said to suffer and enter into his glory, well now he expands that glory, earlier he said to suffer and to enter in glory, here he says to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem, ye are witnesses of these things, behold I send the promise of my father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. 
So we have that glory unpacked all of a sudden. What is the glory? Well, it starts with the resurrection and it ends up leading into a spirit-empowered mission to the entire world. What did we read in the Old Testament? As we've read through the Old Testament, that all the nations would be given to this anointed one. That David would reign over all the world. The knowledge of the glory of God would cover the world as the waters cover the sea. The Father has given his Son the nations for his inheritance. He will rule them with a rod of iron. Now we see it happening. We see this one who humbled himself, took the form of a servant, and then went through the humiliation further of death, even the death of the cross, and now he has been crowned. He has been raised from the dead, and now he has all authority in heaven and in earth, and he has the authority even to dispense the Holy Spirit. Who has authority to pour out God? Only God. And yet this is a man. He's been crowned because he is God and man. He always was. He always was the son of God. Then he became man as well. And now he is the crowned God man. So when Christ was raised from the dead, he entered into the state of glory. And amazing realities followed upon that glory for him and for us. So why do we need this message about resurrection and Christ's glory as we're about to go into the book of Acts and see how Luke unpacks even further all of this glory? He said they would suffer and enter into glory, and we've seen a few aspects of that, but we're going to go in the book of Acts and see what really happens. But why do we need a message about the resurrection and Christ's glory? I don't know about you, but in my sinful weakness, I tend to have a small, self-centered view of Christianity my salvation, my forgiveness, my standing before God, my experience of God. And those are, all, those are all important things. My, my, my. Selfish Christianity. And then when I get a little bit philanthropic and start thinking about others, it sometimes becomes just about them. I need to save these other sinners and get them help. And their benefit, their deliverance, their salvation, it could become man-centered. But selfish, man-centered Christianity is idolatry. It degenerates to moralism, where it just becomes a list of do's and don'ts because we're just trying to help ourselves and others. It fits in well with our therapy culture. Oh, you're getting a little depressed, or you're getting through this. Okay, well, you need a little bit of help from, from, from the Bible. It becomes a new how-to book. It becomes powerless. God shrinks in our estimation. Christ becomes a tool we use to protect ourselves from danger rather than our Lord who rules over us. And we end up worshiping less and moping more. We give thanks less. We complain more. We obey less and we seek therapy more. And we love less. We rejoice in God less and we sin more. God is dishonored by selfish, man-centered Christianity. Laziness creeps in. Christ's church shrinks in our estimation when we have a man-centered approach to everything, the church seems to us be, to be merely given for our benefit, rather than realizing that Christ purchased it with his own blood to make it a temple for the praise of God. Amen. And that then we say, oh, wow, it's beautiful. Even if it's ugly, it's really beautiful. I need to work on it and help it be more beautiful, because that's Christ's project, so I'm going to join him. 
and I'm sure there's other damaging effects of selfish views of Christianity. But what's the remedy for lazy, weak, fearful, selfish Christianity? A clear view of Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, exalted in glory, and our position as united with him in that glory and participating with him on earth. That's the subject of the book of Acts. People have mentioned many times that the resurrection is crucial in the book of Acts. And so I had gone through and looked for all the references to the resurrection, and I'd marked them. And my conclusion was, I need to mention the resurrection more in sharing the gospel with others. Amen. And that's a good conclusion. But I didn't realize it was the driving power in the book of Acts. I didn't realize that the resurrection of Christ and the glory that Christ attained is what makes the church of Jesus Christ. So let's go to the book of Acts. <clears throat> We've already briefly reviewed the last chapter of Luke, and of course Luke flows right into Acts as, as Luke himself refers back to the gospel of Luke in Acts chapter 1, where he calls it his former treatise. And in Luke chapter 24, we saw that Christ's suffering was followed by his entering into glory, the glory of the resurrection, a new state that no man had ever entered before. It was the state that enabled Christ. It, it, it was the one he attained that gave him the capacity, the position to now be the new Adam, the, new, the beginning of the new creation of God, the dispenser of all the blessings of glorious salvation. The introduction to the book of Acts opens with Christ's resurrection and glory, just like Luke closed with, if we read Acts 1, 1 through 3. As we already read, the former treatise, Have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began, both to do and teach, in the book of Luke, until the day in which he was taken up, after that he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. The book starts right off the bat. We're in the realm of the resurrected king. He has risen from the dead, and he is about to commission his disciples, his apostles. By his reference to the gospel of Luke as what Jesus began to do and teach, Luke implies that Acts gives the continuation of our Savior's acts and teachings. So, it's like part two of the gospel. Part two, now it's the things that Jesus did after he rose again from the dead through his apostles. He starts by appealing to those reali the, the reality and the proofs, the infallible proofs of the resurrection, as we just read. And then Luke pictures our Lord Jesus going out with his disciples to Bethany and ascending up into where? Heaven, right, glory, heaven. Let's read verses 8 through 12. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things while they beheld, he was taken up. And a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up. Behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? 
This same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Christ, our Savior, as a man, went up into heaven. This same Jesus went up into heaven. Now, Elijah was taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire. Enoch was translated that he did not see death. But the Lord Jesus has gone up to heaven in a very different state than they did. They went up to heaven because of his virtue, because of his power, retroactive. It was working before it was done. But they went up to heaven, and we never hear of them. We hear of Elijah coming down and talking to Jesus. But we don't have Elijah doing great works on the earth after being in heaven. We don't have Enoch doing great things on earth, except through that little prophecy he gave in the book of Jude. He being, he being translated still speaks. But we don't have him working from heaven. That's not God's way of operating, except the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the ascended, resurrected and ascended and glorified Lord, and he works from heaven. The one who had said, all authority is given unto me in heaven and in earth, Matthew 28, now takes the appropriate seat for such authority. What's the better place to be? Well, as high as you can go. If you're going to be in charge, you better sit up high so you can see it all. And that's where the Lord Jesus is. The one who said, you shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, after he has gone up in the sight of his apostles, he is now seated in an appropriate place for such a universal, unlimited, glorious, and authoritative rule. So Acts begins with a man exalted to heaven, not to be hid and sequestered and waiting like Enoch and Elijah. They're waiting for the glorious resurrection day when their buddies, we, can join them. Jesus is not in that position. He is ruling. He is saving. He's guiding. He's directing. He's working still on the earth for his people because his glory is a mediatorial glory. It's his glory as the one who stands between God and them, and he is working on our behalf. So Acts began with Christ risen and glorious. That's the first idea that shows us the importance of Christ's glory in the book of Acts. And then the, a major emphasis of the sermons in the book of Acts is Christ's resurrection unto glory. And I won't go through all the sermons, but I've just grabbed a verse from a few of them to, to, to make the point. In Peter's Pentecost sermon in chapter 2, you can turn there if you want to, verse 32, Peter addresses the question of why the sign of tongues had been poured out on the disciples. Now, you remember the Lord Jesus had told his apostles, I am going to, you go and wait in Jerusalem, and the, the gift, the, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you, and you'll be witnesses to me. The gift from the Father, I'm going to pour it out upon you. Well, that's exactly what he did from heaven. And there was a rushing mighty wind from heaven, and tongues of fire came down upon them, and they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance, speaking the mighty works of God. They weren't experimenting with this new faculty they had. They were declaring the mighty works of God in languages from all around the world. Amen. An illustration of the universal glory of Christ. 
at, at its Pentecost sermon where Peter now is addressing this great crowd that gathered to hear what was going on, Peter addressed the question of why these tongues had been given. And Peter says, This Jesus hath God raised up, and being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this, which ye now see and hear, the exalted Christ. Move forward one chapter to the sermon that Peter gave after healing the lame man at the temple, the beautiful gate of the temple. The people challenged him regarding how this man was healed. Peter says, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, that same appeal to the Old Testament, which we won't get into, but it's amazing, hath glorified his son Jesus. Glorified him. What happens when Jesus gets glorified? All kinds of stuff. And that's what the book of Acts is all about. Witnesses get sent. The Holy Spirit comes down. Miracles are done. A church is established. The world is turned upside down. When Christ is glorified, the world is transformed. That's the point of the book of Acts. Glorified, God has glorified his son Jesus, whom ye delivered up. You Jews denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you and killed the prince of life whom God hath raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. Resurrection and glory. The subject of the sermons. And as I was going through Acts, looking at this, I realized there was so much material, so I'm taking like the major ideas and just putting them before you. But really, like each sermon, you can pick it apart and look at how everything relates to the glory of Christ. It's, a, it's truly astonishing how much I had missed in reading Acts. But another sermon to the Sanhedrin, when the Sanhedrin um, brought the apostles before them and demanded, didn't we command you not to preach anymore in this name? Peter answered, the God of our fathers, appeal to the Old Testament again, raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and savior for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Acts chapter 5, verse 30 and 31. This resurrection and glory theme continues throughout the sermons of the book of Acts. So I was very wrong when I was younger, and I heard that resurrection is a major theme in the book of Acts, and so I thought, well, that means when I share the gospel, I should just bring in the resurrection. That was true, but it's like a very small piece of the truth. It's not just mention the resurrection. It's to realize, wait, we are declaring, when we're sharing the gospel, we are not just helping somebody get better. We are declaring the reign of Christ and that they must submit or be destroyed. And also that Christ is dispensing all his glorious benefits that he has purchased for his people. And so we're declaring the very best news that can ever be offered to any man. Christ's glory as the exalted God-man unleashed and sustained the amazing realities of Christianity and the church in the book of Acts and those sermons illustrated. But as we, as we move along, because we're going to look at some other aspects of the book of Acts, but before we do, we're going to cheat and look at some commentaries. Not some commentaries by people in the 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, and 1900s, but some commentaries in the rest of the New Testament. Because guess what? 
It's not just the book of Acts. The whole New Testament is pulsating with the life of the glory of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So let's look at a few other passages. Just And, and I won't turn there because of time. Well, let's turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. And we know this is the passage that where Paul compares Adam and Christ and how that all of the people who are in Adam fell in Adam, which is everybody, except for the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who are in Adam die. Those who are in Christ are made alive because of his virtue. And we'll just read a few verses. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. He says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned, and you'll notice there's a parenthesis at the beginning of verse 13, at least in my Bible, and we'll jump that parenthesis. It's also important, but we can get the main point without the, the parentheses at this point. So jump down to the end of verse 17, start in verse 18. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. 19, for as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. And we won't look at the details, but just think of the main point. The main point is that Jesus is the new Adam. Adam represented his race. Jesus represents his race. And I'm not talking about black and white or anything like that. I'm talking about the line of people that are connected to one individual. He's the new Adam. Like Adam carried all his descendants to death, Christ has his people with him in glory. In his righteous life, atoning death and glorious resurrection, he attained the glory that Adam fell short of. What does it say in Romans chapter 3, verse 23? We've, I hope we've all memorized it. 3.23, for all have sinned, Paul had said, and come short of the glory of God. I don't believe he means that we're not as great as God because it, he's talking about sin. He's not talking about us not knowing everything like God or not being invisible like God or not having all power like God. He's talking about not attaining glory by our righteous life. And he's saying that, as we move back to chapter 5, Christ did. Christ attained the glory. As the new Adam... Christ is also the head of a new creation. What was Adam? He was stuck in a garden. Not stuck. He was placed in a garden as the king of this glorious creation that God had made, but he sinned and brought the curse upon the entire creation. Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 through 23, Paul tells us that this new Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the head of a new creation. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Very similar to Romans chapter 5, but an additional thing we see here is that in his resurrection, he is not only the one who brings glory to his people, but that he is the first instance. He's the first fruits. He's the one who has entered glory, and we're all waiting to do the same thing. 
Somebody said he's the first citizen and currently the only glorified citizen of the kingdom of God in its full manifestation. We say sometimes, I believe erroneously, so-and-so has gone to glory. They've gone to be with Christ. The New Testament says that. And in a way, we can say glory. It's much more glorious even now than it is here. Definitely, they're getting to a better place if they're in Christ than, than here. But glory is after the resurrection. Glory is the consummation of all things. When all the dead will be raised, there will be a new heaven and a new earth, a new creation. It will be glorious, fully glorious. And Christ has entered that glory. He's there. He has it. He's seated at the right hand of his Father. He is as happy as he will be throughout eternity. He is as glorious as he will be. So, so Christ is the new Adam. He's the head of this new creation. And this theme of Christ's union with his people in his glory, in his exalted and glorified state as their Savior runs all through the New Testament. We won't, we won't even turn to more passages, but think of Ephesians 1. Um, think of Romans chapter 6, where Paul talks about dying and rising with Christ. What's the basis of that? Well, our union with Christ. In his, in his glory. Philippians 3, the power of his resurrection, fellowship of his sufferings, if by any means I might be conformable to his, his death and experience the power of his resurrection. Colossians 2 and 3, where he talks about being buried with him in baptism and then raised with him like God raised him from the dead. And then he says, if you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. And all the passages I mentioned were from Paul. So just in case you thought it was some quirk of Paul, Go to Peter. The Father has begotten us again to a lively hope by the resurrection of Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible. What is that? The sufferings of Christ, his resurrection, his entry into glory, and then we participate in that inheritance with him. Same concept. So we have sufferings and glory of Christ being the glory of his people. The, the declaration of the reality of it, and we're brought into a beginning experience of it, and the Holy Spirit that's poured out is the earnest or down payment, the, the first installment of our experience of that glory. So now that we've looked at some commentary, then we can go back to Acts and move through some aspects of how Christ's glory was manifested in amazing ways in the book of Acts. <clears throat> So the impact of Christ being glorified is that his resurrection and exaltation release tremendous benefits for his people. He's the new Adam, the new creation, the first glorified man who has purchased glory for all those who are united to him by faith. So first, in the book of Acts, Jesus manifested his resurrection glory by having his disciples publicly declare his authority openly and freely everywhere which is reminiscent of the last day, which, of course, is the beginning of the new creation in all its fullness, when his authority will be universally acknowledged. The whole book of Acts is filled with the phrase, the name of the Lord Jesus. It's all through it, the name of the Lord Jesus. People are healed in the name of the Lord Jesus. People believe on the name of the Lord Jesus. Peter said in Acts chapter 2, those who call on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. 
Everyone must repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth raised that lame man who was begging outside the temple. His name, through faith in his name, the, the name of Christ is everywhere through the book. Why is that? The exalted glory of Christ. He has the name that is above every name, and that name permeates the book. I'll bring in applications on each of these points instead of bringing them at the end. The name of the exalted Christ. In your speaking of Christ, do you boldly speak and declare him as the one with a name of authority above every name who has received his glory and has authority over the entire world and universe? Not only was the exalted Christ giving his disciples authority to publicly declare his name openly and freely everywhere, but secondly, in the book of Acts, Jesus manifested his resurrection glory by outpouring the Holy Spirit, the power of the new creation. If he's the new Adam and he's the first fruits of this resurrection and he's united to his people, what did he pour the Holy Spirit out for? It's the power of the new creation. It's the beginning of the world to come in us. We get a taste of it, the power of it. Now, remember Christ had promised the gift. You shall be baptized by the Holy Ghost not many days hence. And then we had that marvelous outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, which was him showing openly that he was giving the Holy Spirit to his church. And the marvelous gift of tongues. The Lord Jesus had told his disciples to wait in Jerusalem until I give you power to be those witnesses. And then in Acts chapter 2, there was a rushing wind, flames of fire, and the amazing ability to speak all kinds of language. And what's the result of this display? A great witnessing event. A great outpouring of grace to repent and believe. Thousands converted in one day. A great reuniting of Wretched, Christ-killing Jews to their loving Savior, the resurrected and exalted Jesus who's doing glorious signs of his exaltation through his disciples. Who did all those signs in Acts chapter 2, if you remember the, the day of Pentecost? Who brought those tongues? Was it the disciples? Did they go to a school of tongues? Did they, did they go to a prophecy camp? Peter tells us in the message there in Acts chapter 2, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. Jesus Christ, you crucified and slew, God has raised him up. In fulfillment of David's prophecy, this Jesus has God raised up whereof we all are witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has shed forth this which ye now see and hear. Then he goes on to talk more about his exalted glory. God made that same Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And then throughout the book of Acts, we have more visible demonstrations of the Spirit given by the glorified Christ. Lame men were healed. The lame man in Acts chapter 3 at the temple, the lame man in Lystra. We had tongues spoken in Samaria, Cornelius' household, and in Ephesus. We had glorious demonstrations of the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, as we think about that, demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit. And as we think about ourselves, we have to remember something. We have to remember the, the, where Acts is. We have the Gospels. Then we've got the book of Acts. 
And then we've got epistles or letters that help explain more about the Christian life. Acts is descriptive, not prescriptive. With those signs that God gave, God was not necessarily telling us to do something. He was demonstrating the glorious rule of Christ as the new Adam, the successful head of the new creation. Acts is not telling us what we're supposed to do when we read Acts chapter 2. He's telling us the glory of what Christ did by his spirit. So we have to rely on him for what gifts or power or signs he wants to give us. And if he wants to give us great signs and wonders, he can go ahead. And if he gives us the mighty sign of the declaration of the gospel and the transformation of sinners, I'll take that too. Whatever he gives us, he's the king. Not only did Christ tell them to declare his name everywhere with authority, and not only did he pour out the gift of the Holy Spirit, which was like the beginning, the earnest, the down payment of the new creation, but also in the book of Acts, Jesus manifested his resurrection glory by sovereignly giving the gift of personal conversion, bringing people individually into the kingdom of God, that new creation. Remember, he suffered for sinners. He rose again from the dead, and he entered into glory for them. And so now in the book of Acts, what you see is him converting sinners. Chapter 3, when Peter was preaching to thousands of Jews after the healing of the lame man at the temple, unto you first, God, having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning every one of you from his iniquities. That's Peter declaring it. Peter declares it again in Acts chapter 5 and verse 31, when I believe he's talking to the Sanhedrin again. God has exalted Christ to be a prince and savior to Israel for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And then consider Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. What did the exalted Christ bring to him but the gift of conversion. He blinded Saul so he could truly see. He took him off the road so he could put him on the right road. He converted him. He turned him around. He gave him repentance of what he had done and faith in Christ. He turned him around. I had so many more examples and I had to cut them all out. So I feel bad. But we have other, other instances I'll just mention. One of them is where um, Lydia's heart was opened. We have the instance where it says, and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved or such as were being saved. So the book of Acts is the account of the exalted Christ converting sinners. Have you experienced Christ converting you? Have you experienced him in his exalted position as prince and savior of Israel, giving repentance and remission of sins? Or are you still in your natural condition? Cry out to him. He is exalted to give that gift. And he gives it. He gives it. He gives it. Fourthly, not only did Christ tell them to declare his name everywhere, not only did he pour out the Holy Spirit, not only did he give individual repentance and faith to individuals, but he also manifested his resurrection glory by empowering, sending, 
and providentially guiding the universal spread of the gospel, of his gospel. Remember, the apostles were all Jewish, living in a little corner of the world called Palestine, embracing the Jewish customs that forbade them from socializing with Gentiles. But Christ has been exalted and given the glory. All the ends of the earth have been given to him for his possession, as the Old Testament said. All nations will hear. Many will turn. Kings will arise and worship, according to the promises. So how are those promises going to be fulfilled? If the mediator has entered his glory, if the Christ has suffered and entered into glory, then how will all those promises be fulfilled? Christ himself, as the king, empowers, prepares, sends, and guides the spread of the gospel as he told his disciples from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And he does it in an organic way, a natural, somewhat a natural way, a supernatural. But it, it, it makes sense. Progression, growth, and that's what we see today. The Lord Jesus has not chosen to call the archangel early to come down and blow his trumpet and call the nations to himself. He has called his servants, and they declare his gospel, and Christ converts sinners through the preaching of the gospel, and he unites them to himself by faith, and they experience the glory that Christ now has at the right hand of the Father. So we already mentioned that Christ gave that promise to the disciples that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. That outward movement of the gospel is traced throughout the book, directed by the ascended Christ in glory. And we see his hand at every transition stage as you move in those geographical locations. We see that at first they started in Jerusalem and in Judea, and then persecution scattered the Christians. And it, it, I mean, it's terrible to be persecuted, but the Lord Jesus Christ is king, and he can even allow persecution to come to his people to spread the gospel. And those Christians went everywhere preaching the word, but primarily to Jews only. And then you had men like Philip, who were directed by Christ through the Holy Spirit to preach to the Samaritans in chapter 8, working miracles by the power of the risen Christ. He was guided by the Spirit of Christ in his ministry to the Samaritans and then also to the Ethiopian eunuch. And then you have, as you move along through chapters 8, 9, 10, you have Jews of Cyprus and Cyrene who begin to preach not just to Judean Jews but to Hellenistic Jews, Greek-speaking Jews, but they were still circumcised people. And the hand of the Lord, Jesus Christ, was with them. And a great number believed. And then the Lord gave a vision to a reluctant apostle in Joppa. And he brought the strangest revelation that an apostle could receive. A sheet coming out of heaven. And there were all kinds of animals in that sheet. And the Lord, Jesus Christ, said, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And you have the strangest paradox in the book of Acts when Christ's apostle, commissioned to be his, his witness to the whole world, says, No, Lord. But the Lord changed his mind. He still never ate them, but he understood the point, that he was to go to a Gentile and declare the gospel to the Gentile. And the Lord Jesus Christ directed Peter to Cornelius, and Cornelius was converted gloriously by the preaching of the gospel, and it caused a controversy that opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. 
And then, of course, you move through the majority of the rest of the book of Acts, and what is Paul doing? Preaching the gospel to the world. And symbolically, he reaches the world at the very last chapter. He reaches Rome, which is the world in a symbolic sense because it's the center, the capital of the empire at that time. And so you have the gospel reaching the hub of all activity. Christ, exalted, glorious, is not simply bringing the gospel to one nation, one tribe, but is going to all nations of the world. And that's what you see in the book of Acts. Do you look to Christ to empower and send and guide you in your part in spreading the gospel around the world? Not all of us have a responsibility to the whole world, but all of us together as believers in Christ do. What is our part? Cry out to him. He's the king. He'll guide you. He'll direct you. If he's sitting on his throne, he has the power to guide you and direct you. Fifth, in the book of Acts, Jesus manifested his resurrection glory by creating a new community called the church, a colony of the new creation in this old sin-cursed creation. We see it all through the book of Acts. It's not just a mission book. It's also a church book. And as Christ is risen and exalted, enters into his glory, what does he do? But as soon as thousands of people are converted in Acts chapter 2 at the preaching that followed the pouring out of the Spirit at Pentecost, what you have is believers gathering together and dwelling together in tight fellowship, community, uniting together in praise, eating together, and praying together, and studying doctrine together. That's we can't say necessarily that's the church in all of its fullness. That's the, I mean, they've just been born again, all these people, thousands of them. How, do you, how does such a church operate? I do not know. But there were at least 120 who had been saved before that, so they probably brought some structure to the mess. But you have this great body of people functioning together as a unit, having communi- communion and fellowship and unity together. And as you move through the book of Acts, Acts, Acts chapter 4, again, the very same, same type of picture in Jerusalem. And then as you move through, there's churches mentioned over and over again. The brethren, the churches, the elders, and so on. You see the establishment of Christ's church. Let's just go to Acts 14, verses 21 through 23. Acts chapter 14. This is at the... As, as Paul and Barnabas are in their first missionary journey, I believe, and they went to uh, Derby. They finally had reached the, the end of their, of their circuit, and so they're about to start back. And in verse 21, it says, And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had taught many, they returned again to Lystra and to Iconium and Antioch, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith and that we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. When they had ordained them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. So this glorious work that the exalted Christ is doing is is not just a converting work. 
It's not just a gifting work. It's not just an evangelism work, but it's a church planting work. And it goes all over the world, starting in Jerusalem, moving out, going all over the world, planting structures that have institutional arrangements that keep them healthy and strong. What are elders for? They're not just an organic part of a natural thing that happens. They are authorities who, under Christ, oversee that body. So you have these structured bodies forming under the apostles by Christ's power. And what has Christ done until now? He's kept it going. What are we? A church of the Lord Jesus Christ. What are all true churches, which, praise God, there are many. They have doctrinal errors? Some of them, yes. Do they have practical errors? Yes, I'm sure we do too. But there are churches all over the world, and Christ has established them, and Christ is being exalted and glorified. His glory is being manifested in those churches. The church of Jesus Christ. Move over to chapter 20. Chapter 20, we see even more clearly the, the structure and the glory of Christ's church in the, the speech that Paul gave to the Ephesian elders as he called them out to talk to them on his way by the city. And um, I'll start in verse 28. Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own Blood, And he goes on to talk about his, his own example of care for them and how they as elders are to follow his example. And, and what you see is the establishment of Christ's church. What did he purchase with his blood as he suffered on his way to glory? The church. In other words, the church of Jesus Christ is part of his glory. That's amazing. We're not much. When we look at ourselves, we say, wow. I hope he's not disappointed, but he's not because he looks at his own righteousness in us. He justified us by his blood. He raised Christ up. The Father raised Christ up, and we are vindicated with his vindication. So let me ask you, do you view the church of Christ the way Christ does from his exalted position? It is the purchase of his life's blood, the church which he purchased with his own blood, the church is his beloved, one with him, his flesh and bones. He loves the church. Do you? Sixthly, Jesus manifested his resurrection glory in the book of Acts by executing acts of judgment, reminiscent of the last day judgment. And I mentioned that before, that some things in the book of Acts are reminiscent of the last day. Why would that be? Well, because Jesus is the first fruits of the new creation. The new creation is on its way. We're partaking in a little bit of it by the power of the Holy Spirit. But the final consummation is coming. And so the things, the acts of glory that Christ does in the book of Acts remind us of that that's coming. And that should help us to see when we say, I believe in Christ, we're saying, I am uniting with this glorious movement this glorious reality, this glorious power, this glorious truth that is actually a demonstration of the future in the present, the new creation in this old creation. I'm partaking of aspects of heaven on earth. The new creation is here in a small degree. We have aspects of it. And when Christ in the book of Acts 
kills Ananias and Sapphira because of their lies. They fall down dead at the feet of Peter. Christ is demonstrating his glory in the church. Think of that wicked man, Herod. Why is it just interesting history that Luke records the death of Herod by being eaten by worms? No, it's an act of judgment. He had killed Peter. I mean, he killed James and tried to kill Peter. The Lord delivered Peter. And Herod gave a speech and didn't give glory to God, and he was eaten with worms and died. The judgment has begun. Simon the sorcerer, Peter rebuked him, your money perish with you. The Elamus the sorcerer, Paul told him, you will be blind, not seeing for a season. How would you like that on an evangelist trip? Evangelistic outing. Ah, that guy's not listening. Okay, blind him. I think there wouldn't be as many people at your church. You might have a lawsuit. But Christ did it. The Lord Jesus Christ is displaying his glory in the earth through the Holy Spirit, through his name being declared throughout the world, converting sinners, establishing churches, and demonstrating that the day of judgment is coming. And I've started some aspects of it now, the Lord Jesus says. The exalted Christ will sit as the judge of the universe. He's starting now. Judgment begins at the house of God. Seventhly, Jesus manifested his resurrection glory as head of the new creation by empowering his people to suffer as they bide their time in this old sin-cursed creation. As you go through the book of Acts, one thing that sticks out very clearly is that suffering is the lot of God's people. And what did we read in Acts 14? You can just go back there, Acts chapter 14 and verse 22. What is one of the key things that Paul communicated to these new believers in all these churches where he established elders? He says, it says that he confirmed their souls, exhorted them to continue in the faith, and that we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. In the book of Acts, Christians are beaten. Disciples are imprisoned with chains. Men and women are hailed and stuck in prison. Stephen is stoned, calling upon God, lay not this sin to their charge. Christians suffer at the hand of Saul. Then as a believer, Saul suffers at the hands of Jews and Gentiles. In the book of Acts, the citizens of the new creation kingdom are threatened, mocked, shouted down, accused, lied about, cursed with oaths, and called bad names. The last third of the book of Acts follows prisoner Paul. Court appearances, trials, repeat hearings, dangerous journeys, and house arrest. That's what the glory of the new creation looks like in its colony form in the old creation. So we see the glory, we see the exaltation of Christ, we see him doing these amazing things, but he has chosen to let us walk like he walked. What did he do? He had nowhere to lay his head. He embraced the cross. And he said, anyone who follows after me must take up his cross and follow me. Why is that? That's because it's a life of faith. We're looking to the new creation. We're looking to the end. We're looking to the glorious consummation. And we've received some pieces of it now. And to demonstrate to the world it's true, we embrace the suffering that comes with it because we say, I really am counting on this. I really am counting on that last day. I really am counting on the glory of Christ. I'm not just trying to get some benefit now. I'm looking at the end. Faith, 
Lastly, in the book of Acts, and it's not that this is the last thing, it's just the last thing in my notes in the book of Acts, because actually there's so much more. You can trace the, the idea of prayer through the book of Acts, and it's not just a theme on its own, it connects with the glory of Christ, because it's the exalted Christ who answers the prayers of his people to release Peter from prison. It's the exalted Christ who answers all those prayers. and it's The exaltation of Christ as glorious reigning over his people is just full in the book of Acts. It's beautiful. But the last thing I had was Jesus manifested his resurrection glory by empowering his people with joy. Joy is all through the book of Acts. Why wouldn't it be? It starts in the, we see it first when we look at the book of Luke, that last chapter where he says that Christ would suffer and enter into his glory. Then what did it say at the very last verse of the book of Luke? It said that they worshiped him after he ascended into glory and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Why? Because they know Christ is exalted and the last day is coming. And even if they get burned, or bound, or imprisoned, or chained, or stoned. The last day is coming, and Christ will come in his glory, and they will be glorified with him, because his glory is your glory if you're in him. Joy! Christ is joyful in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2, verse 28, Peter preaching to the crowds of Jews. He says, he quotes from Psalm 16, Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. And he's applying that to Christ and proving that Psalm 16 was talking about Christ rising from the dead. What is an aspect of Christ's resurrection and entrance into glory? Full of joy with the Father's countenance. As the God-man, Christ is the happiest man in the universe. And he always will be. And he calls us by the gospel to enter into his joy. This glory spills over every part of the community of the new creation that's being formed. In chapter 2, the same chapter 2, verse 46, after all those people believed and were baptized, it says the disciples ate their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. It wasn't just because the food was good. The food might not have been enough to go around, as you get to chapter 6, you can see that it wasn't. And there was still some remains of the old creation flesh in some of them. So they weren't sharing quite as freely as they should have. But in chapter 2, we see that they were eating their meat with gladness of heart. Chapter 8, when Philip preached in Samaria, there was great joy in that city. Chapter 13, when Paul and Barnabas were preaching, and then they were persecuted and chased out of the city, and they were oppressed in Pisidian Antioch, as they left the city because of persecution, it says the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Ghost. What if we heard that Pastor Jeff or any other leading brother, brethren here were in jail and that they were beating and torturing them and they had taken the and then, then they escaped and they were gone from, you know, gone from our presence. But we still were full of joy because we know Christ is glorified and we'll be with him in glory. And because the one who was preaching to us said, you're going to suffer, rejoice because the end is coming. And then he suffers and is gone, and we rejoice. It's likely we'd be depressed. And Christians in the book of Acts were depressed too. You have that prayer meeting 
when Peter's in prison and they're all, you know, weeping and crying and Peter gets out of prison and they still won't believe it. There's a pretty bad case of depression right there. But, but joy was characteristic of believing the glory and exalted majesty of Christ. Let me ask you, where is your joy? I hope it's at the right hand of God because all the joys in this world, they get rusty, they get turned into sadness, they die, they get sick, they rot, but our joy is at the right hand of the Father, exalted, glorified, reigning as king forever and ever. He is our joy because he fills the hearts of believers with joy, and he is the only joy giver. So, the book of Acts. We really haven't done an exposition of the book of Acts or an exegesis of the book of Acts or any of that. We've kind of just I've been relying on the fact that I hope you have read the book of Acts, so I was appealing to lots of things I hope you'd already read. But we've looked at how the glorified Christ is what is the engine behind all the amazing things that are happening in the book of Acts. The name of the exalted Lord Jesus being declared. The Holy Spirit being poured out from Christ. The Let me just make sure I get them in order here. The sovereign gift of personal conversion, the empowering, sending, and providential guiding of the universal spread of the gospel. The community of the church as a colony of the new creation, the acts of judgment that the Lord Jesus does, reminiscent of that last day that's coming, and the empowering of his people to suffer and the filling of his people with joy. Christ is exalted. He's full of glory and he's letting us participate in it. The Christian life, as I mentioned at the beginning, the Christian life is not just a religious system to help us in our situation now. It's about Christ, and he's the king. You either bow to him and get on his boat, or you're lost. Our salvation is not a personal security benefit, a kind of private hell insurance. It is participation in a great revolution, a historical transformation of the world. The old creation is doomed. It's crumbling. Christ our King has crushed the head of Satan. He has released us from the curse. Christ is now our King. He authoritatively commands all men and women to submit to his glorious saving benefits. The Holy Spirit is sent by him to work miracles, empower the witnesses, fill the church, create the community of loving believers, and serve as a secure deposit on the expected payout of glory. So, brethren, have more exalted views of Christ because you can't have two exalted views of Christ. He's more glorious than you'll ever imagine, and he's full of joy at the Father's right hand. Be bold. Be zealous. Love the church. Worship Christ and do it all for him in his exalted glory. Amen. O oh, our Lord Jesus Christ, thank you that you have called us to participate in your glory. O oh, Lord Jesus, you are high and lifted up. O oh, Lord Jesus, as a man, you are high and lifted up. You suffered and entered into your glory. You were raised from the dead, and now you pour out all of these benefits upon your church. Oh, I pray, 
Lord, let us have some crumbs. No, Lord, give us what we want. Give us bread. Give us that, Lord, the egg, the, the bread, the, the food. Lord, you won't give us a stone, a scorpion, a snake. Lord, give us more of the Holy Spirit. Give us good gifts. Give us your fullness. And, oh, Lord, give us grace to press on, to continue on until the last day when we get the full payout of glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please stand. Romans 16, 25, Now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery which was kept secret since the world began but now is made manifest and by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the everlasting God made known to all nations for the obedience of faith to God only wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. You are dismissed.